You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. That's Louise Mulcahy, Irish traditional musician and piper, playing a slow air on the Ireland pipes as a tribute to founder and leader of the Chieftains, Paddy Maloney, whose death was announced yesterday at the age of 83. The piece first recorded on the Tin Whistles album by Paddy with Sean Potts in 1973, and that was a, is a fantastically enchanting rendition of it from Louise Mulcahy. Thank you very much. Now we can speak with Martin Hayes, a renowned fiddle player and founding member of the Gloaming Traditional Music Group. Martin, good morning to you. Good morning, Angus. We've heard many tributes to Paddy Maloney in the, in the last 24 hours. And um, the, the big sense seems to be that he was all about sharing his knowledge, his expertise and bringing his music to a wider audience. And while you never performed with him, you knew him very well. Well, I knew him and I, I would meet him at festivals and I, I think the last time I met him here was in a hotel uh, lobby here in Dublin. You know, just I would run into him casually here and there. And um, so I'd known him o- over the years and of course I've, I've known the, the music of the Chieftains from like the very beginning, of course. The Chieftains are about in existence the, the entirety of my life and uh, the sound of Paddy Maloney and the Chieftains has been a, a backdrop to Irish culture, I think, for, for all of that time. And we can hear Louise Mulcahy in the background playing a tribute to Paddy on the Illin Pipes. And across the, the world, Paddy did a lot for bringing the sounds such as those lovely haunting and chanting sounds of the Illin Pipes to, to that global audience, didn't he? Yeah, well, in Paddy's youth, the Illin Pipes were, were, were an, an instrument almost on the verge of extinction, you could say. And uh, by the time he has passed away, it's a sound that's universally recognised across the globe. And I think in large measure, you have to say it was due to Paddy in that respect, because there was no greater ambassador than Paddy and the Chieftains for for Irish music and Irish culture on on a global scale. So the sound of the Yellen Pipes is now in movie tracks. It's um, all over the world. It's a familiar sound. And I think it's the sound of Paddy in many ways. And I asked Louise earlier about her, what she thinks his legacy will be. What do you think it is? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen anybody um, take to the stage in, in a global way. We, we had imagined our music, our traditional music, as a, as a kind of a, a dialogue, an internal uh, music form that we ourselves understood and communicated. Uh, but he has proven that traditional Irish music is, is a universal medium of, of musical expression that can be heard, understood and appreciated on, on a global scale. And of course, he was a founding member of Cladder Records together with Garrick the Brune. He brought his love, his passion for Irish music across the, the world, as we said, but also very importantly to the Irish diaspora. And um, I, th- I think it's, it, it's a unique identifier of, of being Irish when you hear that music. I think it, you, you associate it with these aisles right away, wouldn't you? You, you? you would, yeah. And I mean, I lived in America like for, for over 26 years. And so I can tell you that um, people like in America and Irish Americans and Americans in general, like the sound of Ireland, the sound of Irish music for them is in fact the sound of the Chieftains and Paddy Maloney. 
Perfectly said. Martin Hayes, thank you very much for joining us and paying tribute to Paddy Maloney, who passed away at the age of 83. Now we'll hear a little bit more of the Ellen Pipes from Louise. For almost 600 days, the pandemic plan is that this day next week, the restrictions on our lives in place to try and curb the virus will end. There are some exceptions, but an increase in the incidence of the disease and people in hospital with COVID in recent days has led to doubts. Neffet modeller Professor Philip Nolan says Ireland is on a knife edge. The Taoiseach says he can't guarantee further reopening and a decision will be made early next week after advice from Neffet. With three quarters of the population now fully vaccinated against getting sick from the virus, the government is also waiting on advice on who next will be offered a vaccine by the National Immunisation Advisory Committee. At the moment, a third dose of a vaccine is available to people with weakened immune systems and booster doses to people over the age of 80 and residents of nursing homes over the age of 65. Earlier, the Minister for Higher Education and Further Education and former Minister for Health Simon Harris told Anya he expects a decision next week. Professor Karina Butler is chair of that committee and is with us now. Professor Butler, good morning and welcome to Morning Ireland. Good morning. What's your understanding of why so many people are getting sick and ending up in hospital from the virus when over three quarters of the population are fully vaccinated? Well, I'd be the first to say we mightn't understand all the factors that are in this with this virus and the way that it comes through the system in waves. But there certainly are a number of readily identifiable factors that contribute to this overall. First of all, and I suppose it is the elephant in the room uh, with so much attention focusing on boosters, the real elephant in the room is that we still have a large po- segment of our population, even though we're the best in Europe with our uptake, but a large segment who are unvaccinated. Uh, And that's within the adult population. And we really have to look as to why that is the case. And can we fill the gaps in knowledge, the gaps in information to give those people the confidence and the trust that in fact getting vaccinated is the way forward? Because when we look at what's happening and the numbers are going up, and I mean, everybody is concerned and rightly concerned um, to do that. But again, if we look at them, who's ending up in ICU? 80% of the people ending up in ICU are not fully vaccinated. And of the others, most of them, 98% have underlying conditions primarily conditions that impact on their ability to respond to the vaccines, that is, immune compromise. If we look at the deaths in Ireland, and again, I mean, every death is a tragedy. And yes, there will be occasional deaths where it isn't obvious why someone suddenly succumbed to COVID. But for most of them, there are obvious reasons. The median age is 82. And again, um, 
most of those have underlying conditions okay. or because of age, their immune systems are not responding. So that those are the people that were the first steps in terms of focusing the need for boosters. So and now the question comes as to are there others where the evidence shows that we should be progressing that rollout in terms of boosters. But there may be many, and it may th be the bulk of the population, for whom this isn't the right time, that in fact it may be beneficial to wait longer and in that to help with the equity in terms of distribution of vaccines on a global basis okay. because we need to think of that as well. Is, is waning vaccine protection playing a part then in breakthrough infections? Are, are people getting sick because their vaccine has stopped working for them? Um, I think what we look at, and in the data from the States, is that if you are unvaccinated, you are 17 times more likely to end up in hospital. Yes, but and that was over the last. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming to that. I'm just explaining. And even in this Delta era, because we're trying to tease out the contribution of, for example, the change in the Delta virus versus waning immunity, and that's what I'm leading into, um, you're 10 times more likely. In terms of the waning immunity, we do know that your immunity in terms of protection against infection um, certainly seems to drop off actually quite quickly over the first couple of months and then more slowly, but absolutely it declines over time. What hasn't happened, and it may be because there's different roles of the immune system in terms of protecting against that superficial infection, as it were, in the nose and that, the mucosal immunity, and the deeper protection provided by the antibodies, is that that hasn't seemed to decline overall. That has held up very well. But for certain groups, and that's what we have to focus on, there may be that beginning of waning when you get beyond about six months, six to eight months. So that's what we're factoring into. And then looking at is that translating into those not only having more infection, but having more adverse outcomes from their infection. Leo Varadkar says the case for an extensive booster campaign is stronger than ever, pointing to Israel, which he says saw a return of Delta, got its numbers down and under control again through an extensive booster programme. Stephen Donnelly says that you're considering extending the booster campaign and that he will be asking NIAC to look also at healthcare workers and those under the age of 65 that if evidence emerges of waning in the protection provided by vaccines, quote, we need to be ahead of that. How long have you been considering whether to extend a booster campaign? What, we're, what we've been considering it since basically since we've got into this programme, even as back as uh, last uh, spring or summer and looking at how this virus behaves naturally and what immunity to this virus in the natural stage is. And so the first um, goal, of course, was to get everybody vaccinated. And that still is the prime focus in terms of if we want to reduce circulation of virus and protect those who, for whatever reason, the vaccine hasn't fully protected them, then getting everybody vaccinated will reduce the circulation of the virus in the community. So then when we come on to the summer, it was identifying those groups that were most likely to be in need of boosters. But as always, we are uh, following the evidence because um, we know that immunity actually is quite long lasting, uh, particularly our cellular immune systems that 
you know, come to the fore. We know it's natural after any infection to see some decline in antibody levels. For example, if I've had chickenpox as a child, I'll have very high levels initially. They will decline over time, but I will still have protection long-lasting, even though those levels of antibodies may fall down. The other complicating factor in all of this is we've had no single level that we can say this correlates with protection or it doesn't. We know and increasingly even over the last month, in fact in the last weeks, there's just been a paper to really show that yes, the antibody levels are an overall correlate with protection. They are important and if someone's antibody levels really drop down to undetectable levels, they are more vulnerable. That information is just coming out all the time. And that is the kind of thing we are constantly looking at. Even this week, even yesterday, um, we've just heard um, within the States the authorization of uh, the Moderna vaccine, but not at its full dose, at a half dose. So in considering boosters, we also have to consider at every step benefits and harms. Is it going to be a benefit to the group in question to have the boosters? Simon Harris, as we heard earlier, says the government are seeking urgent advice and expects that advice next week. Will you be making a decision next week? We are working very hard to collate the evidence to give the best advice that we can to the Department of Health to guide them in their advice to the government. So will that advice be made next week? When the advice is complete, when it is robust, If that is sooner, if that is this evening, it won't be. But if it is, I won't give a specific date. Sorry to ask for Clara. He's expecting it by next week. Will it be next week? The advice will be given as soon as we have it ready to go. Are you examining whether to extend vaccines to people under the age of 12? And when will you make a decision on that? Well, there is no vaccine yet authorised for use under 12, but of course we're continuing to review the evidence in terms of the impact of infection on those under 12 and the impact of infection on those under 12 in the wider community, and we're keeping that under constant review as well. Many people listening this morning will be asking the question, When will the vaccination programme allow us to get back to living life again? If getting almost everyone, three quarters of the entire population so far fully vaccinated is not getting us back to somewhat normal, what will? That's the question I suppose that we all want to have a definitive answer to. Um, If we go back two years, we would have thought we would have been through this in about six weeks. At every stage of this road, it has not been straightforward. There have been twists and turns. Uh, What we do know is that the vaccination is really to the front and fore of getting us back. Uh, There are many uncertainties and we are dealing with those and steering the course. uh, When we look at other countries, we see that what is the likely outcome in terms of this virus is that there will continue to be some levels of upswings and downswings and they will gradually lessen over time but what has happened is that the vaccines and the vaccine program is is successful in keeping people overwhelmingly safer than without those vaccines as i said for the unvaccinated they are 17 times more likely to end up in hospital
do you think that there should be further reopening next week? The uh, considerations around reopening um, are multifaceted. We are focusing on one area of that. I think it is very important that we continue our focus in trying to make sure that everybody is vaccinated, that they are protected. But what do you think about reopening next week? I think that we have to give consideration to all the different facets there. I think it is a time for caution and um, we have to see how things can be done safely. Professor Karina Butler, Chair of the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, thank you for speaking to us this morning. Now, the EU says it's turned its rules upside down and inside out to come up with a solution on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the plan to drop most checks on goods from the UK to Northern Ireland has been broadly welcomed by industry there. But the political reaction has been divided. We'll hear from the SDLP MP Claire Hanna in a moment. But here's DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson, who described the proposals as the EU's starting point on the 6-1 News last night. These proposals fall uh, well short of what we need, uh, but we're going into uh, the next stage of the process. We want to find a solution. Uh, um, We uh, agree with Lord Frost when he said yesterday what we need is to replace the current arrangements with new arrangements that respect Northern Ireland's place within the UK internal market, remove the Irish Sea border on the movement of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and put in place practical arrangements for the movement of goods into the European Union. DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson on the 6-1 News last night. With us now, the SDLP MP, Claire Hanna. Claire Hanna, good morning to you. Good morning. You heard Geoffrey Donaldson there, and we also heard yesterday evening the UUP leader, Doug Beattie, warning that opposition to the ECJ in relation to that, a brick will turn into a petrol bomb, and a petrol bomb could turn into a coffin. What do you make of this unionist insistence on the European Court of Justice being a sticking point and their reaction to the EU proposals? I, I, I just don't think it matches uh, the reality of what people um, really are feeling on the ground on this. And I think there has been um, a, a degree of the response being created uh, over the last seven or eight months and people being told that this is a terrible deal rather than actually uh, feeling it. The, the fact is the Brexit years and the protocol years have been um, have been grim for Northern Ireland. But I believe the vast majority of the people have, have moved on in ways from the issue businesses are adapting or have identified fixes, many of which have been reflected in these proposals. And I don't think the majority of people of any background um, want to see the politics being allowed uh, to go down this ideological rabbit hole and abstract issues like uh, like the ECJ and those being used to prevent a decent offer uh, being, uh, being adopted and worked through and potentially allowing businesses to get on with Mm-hmm. Uh, with their businesses and even maybe being allowed to realise some of the opportunities that the protocol uh, presents. You're in Westminster. You see the Conservatives as all of this is going on. What are, is your assessment of the chances of these talks succeeding, given you know the fact that Tuesday and Wednesday were completely different takes on the protocol? 
Well, qu- quite clearly, there's there's uh, an element in, in the UK government that are keen to use the protocol as a as a mine for grievance. I suppose a front um, through which they can keep battling um, with the EU. We know from Frost's own uh, pronouncement at the Conservative Party conference that he believes that the main issue is that the protocol is largely working and that trade um, is adapting and that there's an increased north-south trade, and he sees that um, as a problem. Whereas most people would see, um, you know, increased prosperity as, as an opportunity um, for, for, for Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not uh, they are willing to go all the way in terms of, um, you know, trade war and so on. There's a, an acute oversimplification of the issue. People are bandying around the threat to trigger um, Article 16. But I mean, if, if you if you if you look at the the situation in GB, who are in fact. Um, grappling with the effects of of, of Northern Ar- of Brexit and faring a lot worse than Northern Ireland, there is um, perhaps a degree to which they they don't want to see Northern Ireland um, uh, stabilised and prospering too much because it will highlight um, the loss of single market access at GB businesses mm-hmm. and the damage um, that that is happening. But like I say, um, you know we have had over five years of of politicking on this, and and businesses have have lost so much time trying to respond to proposals get used to new rules um and for for the, for the wider society in northern ireland it has been acutely polarizing all of the things we don't need to talk about that much here around identity and flags and borders are on the political agenda morning noon and night and you can see the polarizing um effect that that's having it's worth saying the stlp is acutely aware that there's a particular hurt felt by unionists through you know the, the perception of of barriers within the UK and we're yeah. we're aware of the symbolic impact of 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 borders but but we genuinely believe these proposals from the EU would offer a huge um, uh, amount of solution in that regard and should be pursued in good faith it is a worry that some unionist parties in the UK government may wish to sort of keep this on a low boil um, until the assembly election and use it for that electoral purpose and that would be really um, negative for Northern Ireland. SDLP MP Claire Hanna, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And that question that Claire Hanna raised, uh, what happens next and what will the fallout be for all of us on this island? Let's hear now from Mushtaba Rahman, who's Managing Director of the Eurasia Group and he's worked at the EU Commission as well as the UK Treasury. Mushtaba Rahman, good morning to you. Good morning. So what's your assessment of where we're at and where this goes? I mean, I think Lord Frost front run um, Maros Sefcovic's package yesterday in his speech in Lisbon on Tuesday, effectively arguing that regardless of what package is presented, it won't be enough because there's not sufficient movement on this core question now of the European Court of Justice. So I suspect we will have a, a month of ping pong between the two sides. And at some point, our view certainly is that the government will seek to notify Article 16. And the question really is whether it chooses to do that in a very destructive way or whether it's a bit more constructive about how it how it seeks to do that. I mean, so far, Boris Johnson and David Frost have been able to win concessions from the EU, haven't they, on trade? So why isn't it, you know, is it reasonable from their point of view to presume they might be able to get that on the European Court of Justice? Okay, I think Lord Frost is sounding much more reasonable. Certainly his speech in Lisbon, the words were tough, but the, the tone was soft. So that's 
created some speculation that there may be a landing zone on the court. But I think the EU line on there is quite firm. I think there's also a lot of ambiguity, frankly, about the government's long-run objectives. I mean, do they actually want to fix these issues in Northern Ireland or are they seeking domestic political and electoral advantage from an ongoing fight with the EU, which does serve the Tory party's interest on this side, a, a strong dividing line with the Labour opposition on Europe, where there is a belief in Downing Street that Keir Starmer is vulnerable. You know, there's a question about the extent to which they want to lean into that issue, but do they want Europe to be a focus at the next election? I think, I think yes, they do. So, you know, one, we, we, one can debate what the compromise may be on the ECJ. There are, there are certain precedents in other third countries that could be pointed to. But the real question, I think, is does the UK side want an agreement or not? And on that mm-hmm. score, I think it's very unclear. So what would happen, do you think, um, given th- those attitudes there and given that it might suit Boris Johnson to uh, be permanently at odds with the EU, even, you know, despite the consequences that might ensue? What could the EU do if Boris Johnson invokes Article 16? So, look, I think they're very clear sighted about what the government is up to, you know, if they are, if they choose to fully disapply the protocol, um, that is on some level a calculation that the Commission will then not force Dublin to resurrect a border on the island of Ireland. Of course, that is the correct calculation. But that does, of course, call into question Ireland's place within the broader single market because there Oh, we've had to drop out. pressure on the need to institute checks. Sorry, Mishtab, but there was a brief dropout on the line. Continue. Because Sorry, actually, I'm we're getting to a point that's very interesting from an I- Irish point of view. So if this escalates and, you know, the, the issue, the focus is on trade, what happens to Ireland's position in the single market? Well, I think the UK government is calling that into question. And I think that is very well understood in Brussels. And I frankly don't think, regardless of the economic consequences, the Commission or other member states will allow that kind of pressure to be placed upon Ireland. I think they're absolutely very clear. If the UK side refuses to abide by its commitments regarding the protocol, either in part or in whole, and there is no border on the island of Ireland, of course, that puts the Republic under untenable strain regarding its broader membership of the single market. And I think in that context, there is some discussion in Brussels regarding a unilateral suspension of the entire trade agreement. You'll you'll recall and will, of course, know that negotiations under Michel Barnier were sequenced. They were sequenced for a purpose. The EU wanted to ensure there was a full solution to this question off the Irish border before a trade agreement was signed and the European Council and the member states were fully behind that negotiating strategy. So if the UK government is now calling the former, i.e. its commitments under the withdrawal treaty, if if they are seeking to undo those commitments or they they are calling those commitments into question, I think the logical and intellectually coherent response for Europe would be to say the trade agreement also needs to be called into question. So, you know, that that is some way off that, you know, that this is not this is not around the corner. But the Mm -hmm. point is that is being discussed at the highest levels of the commission and in Brussels. And, and, And simply that fact that this is being discussed, I think, suggests how seriously Brussels views what the UK government is currently up to. And the big question that nobody, it appears, can answer at the moment is, in the end, what will Boris Johnson do? I don't think they know, frankly, and I think I think we would be wrong to suggest there's a coherent uh, tactical or strategic uh, 
um, you know, um, idea within within the number ten operation or between Boris Johnson and Lord Frost. I don't think they know. I think I think their view is you lean very hard into this question with a view to extracting as many concessions as you can. They're obviously seeking to do that on the question of trade across the GBNI border. Now they're invoking this question of the ECJ. I think this regime came into power looking at what Theresa May did and looking at how they felt Theresa May was treated and they drew very different lessons. They think hardball works and that may be an uncomfortable fact. We may not like that, but I think that's how they want to do business. So I don't think there's a fully signed up, coherent, signed off strategy. I think I think this is all a bit of a gamble. They're going to lean hard on the question and they're going to see where things land. Mushtaba Rahman, Managing Director of the Eurasia Group. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on Morning Ireland this morning. Gardaí investigating the disappearance of Deirdre Jacob and a number of other women will today begin searching woodland in County Kildare, close to the border with County Wicklow. Detectives say the development follows the receipt of credible information and a review of evidence. Between 1993 and 1998, at least six women went missing in the Leinster area. Deirdre Jacob, Annie McCarrick, Jojo Dullard, Kira Breen, Fiona Pender and Fiona Sinnott. Alan Bailey is a retired detective sergeant and former national coordinator for Operation Trace, which investigated those disappearances and he joins us now on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. As you understand it, what has prompted this search? Why is it happening now? Well, first of all, I would describe it as a very significant development. And I believe it's based on evidence that's just recently been obtained, very credible evidence, and it has led to this. This is a huge undertaking, and it had gone for a number of weeks. So in investigative terms, it is a very significant development. Now, you're particularly familiar with the case of Deirdre Jacob, the young woman who went missing back in 1998. Will you remind us what's known about the circumstances of her disappearance? Well, Deirdre's disappearance Rachel, was most most unusual. She was standing at the front gate and to, just about to enter her own front garden at a place called Rathcarbury in Newbridge and just disappeared. Without, and to this day, there'll be no trace ever of her. Uh, she was seen at, at stand at the gate and waved to a number of neighbours and friends who passed by on the road, a busy road leading into Newbridge Town, and no trace ever found since of her. Yeah, it, it's such an unusual case, and I know you've always believed that she was taken by a stranger. That's correct, yeah. Uh, we'd be uh, satisfied from our investigations from the very start that she didn't leave of her own free will and certainly the person who took her was not someone that was known to her. Mm. Now officially Gardaí say that they're looking now at the disappearance of Deirdre and also at the disappearance of a number of other women. Um, As far as you're aware, does the convicted rapist Larry Murphy, does he remain a person of interest in all of this? Well he would remain a person of interest insofar as his modus operandi the crimes he was convicted of would be a cause of concern and because of that alone he would certainly be a person of interest. Uh, I'd just like to remind you though, Rachel, that uh, this area that's been searched now is only some 10 minutes drive from where another girl, Jojo Dullard, mm-hmm. went missing in 1993, so it's, that's something else we have to keep in mind. 
this is it. And again, that was such a terribly sad case. I mean, it was as though at the time that she just disappeared into thin air. That's correct. She was coming on a lift on the side of the road. Uh, quite a common practice back then. You know, you'd, uh, every road you drove, you'd meet somebody coming a lift. And, and she just, she got into a car and has never been seen since. This will be a difficult time for the families, for, for Jojo Dullard's family, for Deirdre Jacobs' family and for others. On the one hand, I suppose there's a chance of a breakthrough, but on the other, they must surely, after all this time, be scared of getting their hopes up. Yeah, I know Rachel lived for the families, and I got to know the families over 13 years on Operation Trace. This is a very difficult time. They have had a lot of false stones, and hopefully this search now will bring some closure to at least one family and it will at the same time provide vital evidence that will assist in solving the murder of their loved one. Mm-hmm. When we talk about these cases, I'm always conscious as well that there are other people out there who may even be listening this morning and who may know something about what happened in these cases. And, and that's a very important point, Rachel. There are those people out there, not involved in the crime itself, but maybe people that someone has confided in or is aware of something that happened. And they, they have ev- evidence that would be very important and would be vital to solving these cases. Mm, after all this time, how hopeful w- would you be that somebody else might come forward? Well, having served in the Garda Cold Case Unit for a number of years, I'm aware that the conscience is a funny thing, Rachel. It does, it does trouble people and that the passage of time doesn't change that. And it's never too late. It's never, ever too late. And, I mean... This new, this evidence has only recently been uh, received, but it's as significant now as if it was received back when the disappearance occurred. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure many people will be thinking of the families today. Alan, oh, yeah. thank you very much for taking okay, our call this morning. Uh, Not at all. Alan Bailey there, who's a retired detective sergeant and former national coordinator for Operation Trace, which investigated the disappearances of a number of women in Leinster during the 1990s. <laughs> We're heading back to La Palma now, where nearly 3,000 people are in lockdown again this morning. Journalist Barbara Belt, I beg your pardon, joins us now from the Canary Islands. Barbara, thanks for rejoining us on Morning Ireland. What has happened to cause this lockdown? Good morning. Um, well, this is this latest turn of events, which is, um, I wouldn't say it's disastrous, but it's certainly taxing everybody's belly in worn patience and uh, strength is due to the collapse of the original volcanic cone. Um, this happened in the early hours of Saturday, Sunday. Um, Sunday. And there was an accumulation of lava there in the crater and it all shot out at great force, carrying with it rocks for the first time this time, rocks the size of houses, smaller ones as well. And it shot off in a different direction. And this was really bad news because what had happened until then, since it's been going on September the 19th, is that the lava flows had made it down to the sea. And so everybody thought, right, that's it. Everybody who was going to get hit by lava and lose their houses because of the lava and their land, it's happened. It's a known quantity now. It'll continue like this. But, of course, it's extremely difficult. It's impossible to to predict what's going to happen. And so this new 
hole blown inside of the original volcanic cone let out, I think it was something like 750,000 cubic meters of lava at 1,200 degrees and extremely liquid. It wasn't a viscous lava. And it set off in a completely new direction. Um, it did slightly turn towards the original flow of lava in the end. Um, but nevertheless, it's done, you know, there were people in little villages like Todoke, which was mostly destroyed last time around over the last three weeks since it's been running. And those who hadn't lost their homes and land thought, that's it, we're safe, and it's just obliterated it. Mm. And of course, what's happened that's made the news recently, I mean, it's always been newsworthy, but of course, there's lots of other news around the world, is that this new lava flow has made its way into a small local industrial estate where there is a cement works and it's caught fire and there are poisonous gases and so this has caused it's actually closer to 3,500 people to be mm, sent on home confinement on lockdown and uh, that's it, it, the it really the is it, it's been going on for for so long now Barbara are people getting all the financial support and other help that they need from the government and the authorities I would say yes, they are. Um, in the short term, there's an enormous amount of aid coming in. There's great solidarity in the rest of the Canary Islands, nationally as well and internationally. So in terms of people showing their, their empathy and their sympathy by sending things lots, in terms of local government finding accommodation for people, giving them an income, stopping uh, making it unnecessary to pay the equivalent of a national insurance stamp or mortgages or bank loans. Everything's on hold. Everybody's all right now. Um, there are questions about, and there's also been a very considerable 214 million euros made available um, for the La Palma, for the results, whatever they will be in the end of the La Palma eruption. And we've not only had the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez down here absolutely pledging total support, but the king. So the, the problem with this is more complex and it would take longer than we've got now. But there are a thousand buildings which have been destroyed by this so far. And because of mm, chaotic Canarian planning laws, this isn't just in La Palma, this is all over the Canaries. Unfortunately, all of those buildings were not legal houses. That doesn't mean to say they were shacks. Some of them were considerable properties and have been mm. there for some generations. But it's very much a case of mm, let's build and test it and see if we get away with it here, just yeah. because there is a great lack of planning. Okay. So there's now a big question mark Will everybody get this money or only the people who've got registered houses, in which case some special measures have to be made for the people whose houses weren't legally registered with the That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. It is a, a, a real historic problem there in Spain. Barbara, we leave it there for now. Thank you very much indeed. Barbara Belt, their reporting form from the Canary Islands for us. To Norway now, where five people were killed and two injured when a man attacked them with a bow and arrow. The shocking event happened in the town of Kongsberg, southwest of Oslo. The suspect has been arrested. Police Chief Irvind Ass spoke to reporters last night. 
I can confirm that we have had a serious incident in the centre of Kongsberg tonight. At 18.13, the police got several reports of a man moving around with a weapon with a bow and arrows. We can confirm that several are injured and there are fatalities. The injured have been brought to hospital for treatment. The municipality has been notified and declared an emergency and will assist those who need it. The perpetrator has been caught and we aren't looking for more people now. With the information we have, we now believe he did this on his own. And let's hear more now from Oslo-based journalist Tom Christiansen. Tom, take us through events as they unfolded these horrific events in Kongsberg last night. It was a shocking thing in this little town where pe- all people know each other. He popped up in a, a food store with a bow and arrow and people thought it was some toys. But then he started shooting and he shot five people as we have heard. Police has now established that this is a Danish citizen. He has been living in Kongsberg. He's known by the police. And it's also known by the health service, uh, meaning that he might have some mental disturbances. Police has been interesting to know if this was a terror act. What are his reasons for, for this? But so far we haven't got that from him. What's known about the five fatalities and also those injured? The names have not been known so far. And that is what the whole community there at the moment is, is, is wondering. Who are they? Are the people that we know? And the kids are on the way to school and the police will be at school to explain what has happened. But the shock in the city is that are any of these pupils in relation to those who are killed or do they know them? It's, it's traumatizing for the whole community. And you say the suspect who's been arrested was known by the police and the health service. But whatever the motive, whatever the reason, uh, it's terrifying, isn't it, for the community, an attack like this, particularly with a weapon like a bow and arrow, which seems utterly bizarre. Police also say that he might have had other other weapons than... uh, And I have heard the rumours that... He also has stabbed a woman with, with a knife. And what will happen? You say the police are going to the schools today. Talk to us about the political reaction today and how the investigation will continue. The political reactions here are very, very strong. And all resources from the police, including the, the terror units, has been sent to Kongsberg. Uh, it's a very special day in Norway because we are changing government uh, this at noon today, So, which is as a great event. But uh, this day, that will be uh, story number two in, in, in the society. Uh, what the politician can do here is to see that all resources are set to go to Kongsberg to help the local police. All right, and thank you for filling us in on all of that. That's journalist Tom Christensen in Oslo. Budget 2022, it'll be delivered at around lunchtime today. Here's the Taoiseach Michal Martin speaking on his way into Cabinet. 
The backdrop to this budget is Ireland emerging from the COVID pandemic and the economic recovery underway. We have to consolidate that and we'll do that by making sure that there's no cliff edge uh, in respect of supports for jobs uh, in companies through the US scheme and so on. But also in terms of children and families um, to do the best we can within the resources uh, to support children in education, in childcare and in reducing costs uh, in terms of access to health uh, within the health system itself, uh, both in terms of primary care GPs and in terms of uh, hospital uh, hospitals as well and access to, to, to hospitals. So that's, that's, that's particularly important. Uh, and in education through special needs and uh, disadvantage uh, that we would have a particular focus on that. Um, and uh, more broadly speaking there, then given the increase in fuel prices and the energy situation across the world, it is important that our social welfare package would reflect that issue and would do the very best we can to protect people who would be vulnerable to the pressures uh, arising from uh, the fuel situation globally and the increase in prices. That's Micheál Martin. Let's head to the Department of Finance where our reporter Kean McCormick is joining us from this morning. Kean. Good morning, Audrey. Well, it's a pleasant morning here in Dublin city centre. Uh, we've just heard the Taoiseach there. Um, also, earlier in the programme, you heard Thomas uh, Leo Varadkar talking about the budget and how and the cost of living. And that's certainly an issue people were talking to me about this morning, and we'll hear from them uh, just in a few moments. But lots of headlines as well. Some papers saying that parents are going to be the big winners. Others focusing on half-price travel for the young. Of course, we'll have to see what's going to be announced. But on the run-up to today, a topic certainly was uh, social welfare payments, especially the old-age pension. It was getting a lot of traction. A few weeks back, it um, was mooted that there could be a €10 increase. Uh, Dr. Sean Healy, CEO of Social Justice Ireland, says it's uh, not just about pensioners, and anything less than a €10 social welfare increase is a betrayal. I think it's important to look at the welfare rates, particularly the core welfare rates for groups like unemployed people and so on, who are the weakest and most vulnerable in our society. They have received no increase whatsoever in welfare rates in the last two budgets. An increase of €5 a week in 2022 will not even cover inflation in that year. An increase of anything less than €10 a week in the core welfare rates is in fact a betrayal of Ireland's poorest and most vulnerable people. Well, in the backbenchers, there's concern. Fianna Fáil TD Willie O'Dea says a €5 increase in the state pension isn't good enough. People will be very disappointed with just getting a fiver. I mean, the message I'm getting from my constituency is that five euro per week will not compensate them for, you know, what they've lost for the past couple of years, number one. And secondly, for, you know, projected inflation for the next 12 months. Well, if they're not happy, what does it mean for TDs like yourself? You're a member of government. You have a voice in government. And the increase isn't as much as you'd like it to be. Well, I've advocated strongly for a 10 euro per week increase. My advice is a single advice. I, I know that other people within Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael share that view. But ultimately, the decision is going to be made by the government. Well, if you're unhappy, will you be kicking and screaming about it? Well, I've already kicked and screamed as much as I possibly can. You know, I mean, screaming and kicking after the event uh, isn't really very much good. But I mean, I have made my views on the matter crystal clear to government. 
the the mood of your parliamentary party, Fianna Fáil, about this issue? How would you describe it? Well, I would describe it as 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 uh, as I think that most people in the party share my view that a tenor is what's needed as a, at a minimum, and that a fiver isn't enough. That would reflect, I think, the, the view of the majority of the party. A tenor is what's needed and a fiver isn't enough. That's Limerick City, Fianna Fáil TD, Willie O'Dea talking to me uh, yesterday. Now, this morning I was meeting people who were up early, heading to work, and I asked them about what they need to hear from the Minister for Finance in today's budget, and here's what they told me. I'd like to see a bit more money put into the housing. I think housing is a big problem at the moment, coming out of the COVID, so I'd like to see a few more people put into housing. Coming out of COVID, I know there's a lot of taxes still to come our way, but I think they should be held off for the time being. Let some people get back on their feet. Does housing impact you directly? No, 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 no. It, does, it doesn't impact me directly. I, I'm grand, but once again, I have I have kids coming up looking to buy a house. It's getting very hard out there. They, they need to look at the living situation in Dublin. I believe that there should be a Dublin allowance for everybody trying to live and work in Dublin. Like The cost of living has just skyrocketed in the last few months. People are really struggling, especially colleagues of mine. Um, I work in a local hospital, and um, I think we just need to see some improvements there. From your point of view, the cost of living is number one. Yeah, absolutely. Transport, basic things like day-to-day, everything seems to cost more in the last year and no one's earning any more. cost of living is getting very expensive and the people are struggling. Well, but that's the government has to put the pressure you know, to increase the wages to be, the minimum wages to be decent, the people are living. That's the simple thing. When you say the cost of living is going up, how are you impacted? What do you see increasing in terms of price? Everything. Everything. Like fuel the the shopping basket it's the most important the cost of the basket the food you know all all those all those things the rocket high sky you know well certainly the cost of living was the topic of conversation amongst people who were heading to work early this morning well that's it now audrey from outside government buildings a bit of a wait uh, between now and when the budget announcement will actually be made. But it's back to you in studio. Thank you, Kean McCormick in Dublin City Centre. A Banksy artwork which shredded itself at a previous auction has sold at auction and this time for a record £16 million sterling. That's almost €19 million. It's called Lovers in the Bin and it's what was left after Banksy's piece Girl with Balloon self-shredded after selling for a million pounds at auction back in 2018. This was the moment last night at Sotheby's in London when the sale happened. It's £16 for the great iconic Banksy. Are they out? Thanking them anyway. At £16 million, pounds, ladies and gentlemen, we are selling the Banksy here at Sotheby's. You were here for this fantastic moment at £16 million. Pounds. Alex, you're coming in? I can't tell you how terrified I am to bring down this hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking that everyone is accounted for. We know who you all are. <laughs> and selling, ladies and gentlemen, for a new world record, the Banksy. Love is in the bin. Sold to you, £16 million. Pounds. Congratulations. So they were all very impressed with that 16 million, which was way above the guide price of 4 million. Dr. Barbara Dawson, director of the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin. Um, The great, iconic Banksy, I'm wondering, is he a brilliant artist or a brilliant self-promoter? 
Well, it's a big price, isn't it, Anya? I mean, it was sold in, in 2018 for one million, and what, three years later, it makes 16, you know, plus whatever. Um, that's quite a good inv- uh, return on your investment. Um, he's been around a long time, as you know, since the early 80s when he started graffiti art. Indeed, when graffiti art was uh, a criminal offence. I mean, we now have come to appreciate our street artists. So he certainly was um, a pioneer in many ways. And his girl with the balloon, with balloon, I mean, it's not the most complex image. It's a very endearing image. And it can be bought in stickers, wallpaper, you know, it's, so it's been everywhere. And uh, this is quite, it, it, the fact that the shredder stuck, he said the shredder should have, um, it should have been completely shredded, but the fact that the shredder stuck means you still have a reminiscence of the actual painting because the frame is still there, and then you have the shredded piece underneath. So it's got unique value, you know, it's got a novelty yeah. value for a collector. Yeah, n- novelty and, and all the rest, but there's a lot of, again, you have to worry, wonder how much of this is PR. His style, for instance, is, you know, he uses stencils because he admits himself his freehand isn't good enough. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in some of the articles, it was, it was exhibited in Germany and they were comparing it to the Salvador Mundi, which is the most talked about work by Leonardo. Now, as talked about works, I agree, that girl with balloon, but um, Banksy, I think, himself would say he is not Leonardo da Vinci. He is not, hasn't got the complexity of comp- position but he has the novelty and the unique value and he is mm-hmm. very very clever and you know it was originally to uh, sort of uh, shake up or with anti-establishment uh, anti-the state art market but uh, uh, by doing that it's amusing it's interesting but it's also making a lot of money for him and it's part of that sort of it could be almost part of the new kind of cryptocurrency idea with with art um, but it's, uh, it's the reason, mm. I think in itself, it's half shredded, half still there in a frame. So it's that novelty that certain collectors like. Um, I don't know if they're young collectors or old collectors, yeah. but it's, it's, that's a big attraction for it. It's just for an artist with an anti-capitalist message, you know, yeah. the people spending that much money on his pictures, are they the biggest fools? Is that the story at the end of the day? Is that the punchline? Uh, I don't think they're going to be fools. Uh, people dealing in that money uh, on you, again, like any, um, uh, it, it's, it's become a kind of, as I said, a novelty commodity. Um, they certainly believe that because, because of its originality and that. So it wouldn't be what the conventional would be like on you, you know what I mean? A really, really good artwork uh, with complexity of composition and yeah. thought process. Uh, he has a very good uh, uh, thought process behind what he is doing. Uh, so I can't say, I wouldn't have a clue how the market's going to All jump, right. but right. it's just a very curious and interesting work, and somebody has done an awful lot of, uh, has a huge return on their million three years ago. All right, well, I think the rest of us will stick with the prince. In the meantime, <laughs> Dr. Barbara Dawson, Director of the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin. Thank you. Thank you. And as we heard a short time ago from Darren cricketer Amy Hunter yesterday marked her 16th birthday by scoring an unbeaten 121 for Ireland against Zimbabwe in Harare to become the youngest player, male or female, to score a one-day international century. Here she is speaking after her historic performance. To be honest, I probably felt more nervous for my 50. I um, Obviously, I didn't do so well in the first three games, so I was just delighted to be out there to get, get that first four away. And then from there, it just kind of kind of flew, to be honest. But I was from 50 to 100, felt like I went much quicker than from not to 50, so it was unbelievable. 
We can talk now to Laura Delaney, who's the captain of the Irish women's cricket team. Laura, thanks so much for joining us on the line this morning. I know Amy helped the team to an important win yesterday. What a day it was by the sounds of things. Yeah, absolutely brilliant day for her from an individual point of view, but also a brilliant, I suppose, overall win for us. We won the series 3-1, but yeah, absolutely delighted for Amy. She was outstanding. She is, as we were saying, I mean, she was 16 yesterday. Not many of us could mark our 16th (laughs) birthday, but by achieving something like that. Tell us a little about Amy and indeed a little about the team. Yeah, I suppose I first came across Amy maybe three or four years ago when she came into our Super Series competition. So that would be the equivalent of an Interpro level in hockey or rugby. But she's been playing for the last three years and she's getting better year and year. And yes, at 16, went out and made her debut this year for Ireland at the start of the summer um, and then was promoted up to number three in the last few games and took full advantage yesterday um, and we had a cake for her after the game as well so I think she thoroughly enjoyed yesterday and we did as a team. How strong is the women's game in Ireland? Yeah I think it's becoming more and more competitive we've had three home series this year against Holland um, and Scotland and um, both of which we won and now we've obviously won this series against Zimbabwe so we have a very important qualifiers coming up back in Zimbabwe at the end of November um, which we need to maintain our 10th ranking position to qualify for the ICC Women's Championship, which is something that Ireland have yet to do. So we have our eyes firmly set on that and hopefully with the um, way the team are performing at the moment, that's something that we can achieve. Well, listen, the very best of luck to you and thanks once again for joining us on the line this morning and congratulations once again to Amy. He was the greatest Elon Piper on the planet, according to Rolling Stone's Mick Jagger. And later this morning, Paddy Maloney, founder and leader of the Chieftains, will be laid to rest at St Kevin's Church in Glendalough in Wicklow. There will be a special tribute to Paddy Maloney on the Late Late Show tonight. Here's our farewell now. Tin whistle down when I was six. My mother um, went into Boulders, I remember, on a Christmas Eve, and um, and she bought this tin whistle for one shilling and ninepence. And, and the parents, of course, were very anxious. They knew I had this God-given gift of being able to, if I heard a tune once or twice, uh, I'd be able to sing it. Around Donny Carney, uh, this is when I was about uh, nine or ten years of age, and I used to march around the streets. I was the Pied Piper, and everybody would march, and people would come out just to see this happening, you know, playing the, the flute and people marching after you. <laughs> but I met Leo uh, himself then afterwards. I remember winning the first uh, Feshaw Clea competition. And, uh, you know, I was some like 26 young pipers and there I was 14 years of age and, and he carried me down on his shoulder all the way down the mansion house. The middle, it was, <laughs> and Sean Potts was there with Mick Brophy, another great piper. There was always duets and quartets happening, which, you know, gave you a little more room for imagination, putting together uh, maybe harmonies that might happen and... And we often got criticised for that by the purists at the time. I had 
given it a lot of thought and I said, yes, we should definitely play for the Queen. Uh, and she came along and she was so sweet and nice. And um, afterwards, Prince Philip came along and said, how long are you playing? You know, I said, 65 years. I got, how old are you? Um, I'm 72. Um, oh, you're only a young fella. I love Animal. Um, I mean, that's, that's my little place. And uh, uh, the tranquility there, I mean, just to go upstairs and look out over the valley, uh, you know, and listen to the birds. I just love nature and I feel that you know, music fits in so perfectly. I, I sort of, you know, have these visions of music that it fits in perfectly with life and people. And that tribute to the late Paddy Maloney compiled for us by Una Kelly. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.